Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to the Heredity Podcast for September 2016. This month, seafaring pigs and sex-changing fish. When studying ancient culture, academics often look back to written records of events. But what happens when you look back to civilizations before well-documented written records, such as in the Bronze Age or the Iron Age? How do you learn about them? Well, one answer is to look at pigs. Stay with me here. Pigs were domesticated at least 10,000 years ago. And by looking at the genomes of modern-day pigs and ancient DNA from fossilised pigs, scientists are able to piece back together how they might have been moved around from place to place by people through trading or travelling, providing an insight into the lives of the people that owned them. Pasquale Raya from the University of Naples in Italy has been studying the pigs from southern Italy to find out what their genomes could tell him about how Bronze Age and Iron Age people lived. I gave Pasquale a call, and he started by explaining just how much scientists knew about these cultures' relationships with pigs up until now. We knew absolutely nothing, as uh, as it uh, f- uh, as, as it goes for for southern Italy, because uh, you know um, southern Italy is a very special place in, in these uh, regards because of the extensive uh, history. So uh, there is a lot to tell about the, use, the history of human movements at that time. I mean, during the Bronze Age, during the Iron Age just looking at uh, which kind of animals uh, they were uh, moving and translocating. And often when people are looking at history and how different cultures used worked in history, they look at records of things that people have written down, perhaps, or artworks that were being done. But this is such a long time ago that those things don't necessarily exist. Exactly, because there is no written records we, that can help with. There are particular particular movements of humans that are uh, very um, important, but not well known. And so you decided to look into the genetics or the genomics of pigs. Tell me, what did you do in this study to try to get a sense of how these things were moved around? Okay, we know we know that uh, there are pigs. We know that uh, there is the wild boar, which which is the the feral equivalent of, of the of the pigs. Uh, and uh, in this in that particular study, study we tried to understand uh, what the origin of these pigs was. Just because we know that particular populations, particular cultures, are linked to 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 a particular kind of of, uh, of animal, uh, so by looking into into the genetics, into the genomics of the of the, of the domestic species, you can really grasp. Uh, you have you can have a very good idea of where these animals were were taken. Tell me, where did you get your samples, and what were you looking for in those in those genomes? Okay, we worked with ancient DNA. Where did you harvest your ancient DNA from? It's a number of fossil sites which are spread throughout Italy. And in addition, we have data from the literature, the published data that we can use uh, uh, for comparison. So you looked into this ancient DNA recovered from fossils of pigs that were around at, in this time, the Bronze Age and Iron Age, and you found some surprising things in that DNA. Tell me a little bit more about what you found. 
Well, the most surprising and um, also the most important thing is that uh, we found a, a naplotype. So, so to speak, a naplotype is a, a kind of a genetic marker. It's like uh, a family. Okay, and we find this particular family of pigs uh, in southern Italy and in southern Italy only. It's a, a very special family in the history of uh, domestication of pigs because the earliest pigs to be domesticated were actually belonging to, their fam to this family. But they were not living in southern Italy. They were living in the Near East, where is now Israel or the Palestine, so to speak. And the only viable explanation for this is that someone had uh, actually translocated these particular individuals, uh, uh, individuals belonging to this uh, Near Eastern family into Sardinia, into um, Sicily. Of course, they were transported uh, by sheep. How does this fit in with um, our understanding of how seaworthy these peoples were at that, at that moment in time? There is um, this particular population of humans. We refer to them as sea people because we don't have very much detail about uh, their lives, uh, where they uh, came from, and all of uh, the connections, the commercial connections they had. But we know that these people were they were very good at training, at the trading, and they were very good at, at you know having contact with a number of uh, isolated cities and, and people from uh, throughout the Mediterranean. And what we know now is that these people actually got to uh, Sicily and Sardinia. They were trading pigs with, with locals, very probably. I suppose this is the hard evidence you're finding to back up this idea that these were trading people, they were seasworthy people. Finally, you've got evidence that this is actually happening. Yes, you are absolutely right. Do you think there might be more things that are hiding in ancient DNA, more sort of insights into the cultural, I suppose, processes involved at the time of these early peoples? Uh, well, now that, that we know that this happened, that this very probably happened, I mean, I mean the trading with, with uh, people on both islands and, and probably they were also living on those islands at the time, we can now uh, test hypotheses about that. Uh, did, did they this, this, uh, involve, involve any other species? Uh, how long they were there? How long they were trading with, local, with locals and so on? And there's one sort of final nice little twist to this story, which is that even now you can still detect traces of those pigs in the feral pigs that exist in Sardinia. Yes, this is, this is nice because pigs used to uh, interbreed extensively with wild boars. So the genetic signature that we found in, in, uh, in domestic pigs is now present even in, in the wild relative, in the, in the wild boar. That was Pasquale Raya from the University of Naples. When scientists manage fish stocks, they want to make sure there are enough fish to maintain a healthy population. That means ensuring that there are enough fishy parents to produce the next generation. But what happens if the fish that they're monitoring change sex? It may sound unlikely, but many fish do swap from one sex to another routinely during the course of their life. Can scientists still trust their estimates of a population's reproductive potential if the fish don't hold true to their original sex? That's what Stefano Mariani from the University of Salford in the UK wants to know. I gave him a call and he started with a quick recap of an important ecological measurement, effective population size. The effective population size is one of these uh, mysterious entities 
that many population geneticists love, but uh, it may not be so immediate for the general public to really understand, or even other biologists. The effective population size is um, a measure of how many gene combinations will be available for the following uh, generation. Um, and of course, uh, we use molecular methods um, and other methods, but in this particular case, we have used uh, genetic data, genotyping a lot of fish and making inference um, from the diversity of the gene combinations of this fish, um, uh, trying to work out how many parents might have been behind this particular genetic diversity that we were recording. Now, in this case, there's a particularly interesting sort of, uh, I suppose, uh, curveball to throw into the mix here when it comes to estimating the effective population size. And that is that some species of marine fish don't always stay the same sex throughout their life. They change their sex. Tell me a little bit about how that works. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, one of the uh, most fascinating processes, I think, uh, in the natural world where you have um, species for which uh, becoming the opposite sex is part of the natural life history, not as a result of some strange aberrations. So you have a lot of fish that begin their lives, lives uh, cycle as males, and then after a few years, they turn into a female. And the opposite also happens you have some fish that actually first reproduce as females and then become when they become large and old become males in our case it wasn't so much trying to work out why this happens in the first place but it was really trying to put emphasis on the fact that if this happens the population is going to be different from a normal population where you have about half males and half females throughout the life and in our uh, our expectation was that if this is the case, then the effective population size as a whole, because of such a limiting factor from one particular sex, it means that I'm expecting this population to be generally, evolutionarily speaking, smaller. And you looked into two particular species of fish, both species of sea bream, something that people may be used to on their dinner plates. Indeed, yes, they are a very important food fish. Um, I think the British public will be uh, quite familiar now with the uh, gilthead sea bream that is farmed in the Mediterranean. I personally am Italian, so I'm very familiar with that species, but there are up to uh, more than 100 species of sea breams. Now, as you mentioned, one of these species was uh, what we might call normal when it comes to their sex differentiation. They're males or they're females, and that's how it works. And then the other one is a little bit more fluid. They change between female to male later on in their life. Tell me, what differences did you find when you started to sample these populations? Superficially, uh, they just look like two different species, similar size, not, not much going on there. But then when you look at the data and you, you look at the sex, you immediately notice that uh, in the normal species, you have uh, no significant difference in size between females and males. And in the sex-changing one, you immediately spot it even without seeing the transition necessarily. But just because you see that all the larger fish, the few largest fish are males, and the vast majority of all the other fish and the smaller ones are, are females. And then we started genotyping them. And even when you genotype them, you don't really notice anything too uh, uh, outrageous. You just see that the genetic variability values superficially are very, very similar in terms of number of alleles, heterozygosities. And it's only when you do some specific analysis, then you, will, you are able to see this subtle tendency that these few males are fathering 
all the eggs. And that uh, is, allows you to indirectly estimate the number of breeders and the number of fish that actually are responsible for the sustenance of this population. And we did find that the sex-changing fish actually had a much smaller uh, effective population size than the other ones. Up until now, people have been estimating effective population size as an important genetic marker for various things for a long time. Have people not taken into account this sex-changing life history that these species have? Correct. Uh, the very interesting thing is that uh, um, sex change has been studied a lot from a, uh, from a life history evolution point of view, not so much in terms of uh, molecular genetics and uh, population genetics. So what we're trying to do here is to put together the two disciplines and say, well, actually, this is very interesting from life history and behavior, but actually it will have population genetic consequences. That was Stefano Mariani from the University of Salford in the UK. And that's all from this episode of the Heredity Podcast. Tune in again next month and thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.